do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our Patreon community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or find the link below. Thank you. So welcome to this podcast, Regenerative Agriculture, Investing in Agriculture as if the Planet Mattered. I started doing these podcasts because I noticed that I was having quite some, at least for me, interesting conversations around investing in regenerative agriculture. And every time after the conversation was finished, I thought, why didn't I record this so I could actually share it with others who are interested in the space? I'm Kung I'm a senior manager at Tonic, uh, where we work with a community of impact investors. And in my spare time, I record these interviews. So why regenerative agriculture? Because so many of the current issues we face as a world come together in this sector. And impact investing for me offers a way to scale this sector and reach the potential it has. In these interviews, I'm talking to people who are trying to scale up the regenerative agriculture side, either by increasing the inflow of capital into the sector or by increasing the impact on the ground and scaling up the the enterprises on the ground. You're going to listen to an interview with Paul McMahon, co-founder of SLM Partners. We discussed a lot of things in this interview, uh, among them their current projects in Australia who are benefiting from a good year of rain and the new projects in Ireland and Chile. We also spent some time with the white paper he wrote about ecological farming and the investment case, looking at the main risks for the current farming industry and the main opportunities and barriers that are slowly uh, being taken away, luckily. Enjoy. I'm here today with Paul McMahon, co-founder and managing partner of SLM Partners, an asset manager that acquires and manages rural land on behalf of institutional investors to scale up regenerative ecological farming and forestry systems that deliver financial returns and environmental benefits. He's also the writer of a white paper called The Investment Case for Ecological Farming. Very warm welcome, Paul. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So I would like to start with um, why are you in this business and how did you end up here? Um, I think we we see land at the the center of a number of um, you know overlapping and increasingly important environmental issues uh, you know for example um, you know climate change you know land is going to be play a huge role as a carbon sink as you try and get um, greenhouse gas emissions you know out of the atmosphere um, and whether that's in soils that are in, in, in trees 
or biomass on the land. But terrestrial carbon, we think, has got a, a huge future of the next you know, 50 to 100 years. Um, but looking more broadly, looking at, at water quality, uh, you know, the water we drink and you know, coming out of our taps is hugely influenced by what flows into it from agricultural and forest landscapes you know, upstream um, and, and issues like nitrate pollution, um, uh, pesticides, um, uh, runoff, uh, sedimentation, you know, all, all play a big role in that. Um, biodiversity, of course, is another huge issue. Uh, you know, agriculture and deforestation are responsible for some of the biggest biodiversity losses. Um, so, so we have all these, these overlapping um, uh, environmental sort of pressures, you know, which are which are uh, just intensifying you know, as, as time goes by. Um, we, we decided to get into it as uh, from an investment point of view because although there are these sort of threats, we also see some huge opportunities where we, you know, we found that there are more ecological farming systems out there which are able to address all those environmental issues, able to put carbon in the soil, able to improve water quality, you know, increase biodiversity, um, improve soil health, uh, while also generating you know, really good yields um, uh, at a low cost in a very profitable way. Uh, and, and we think those systems are proven at a small scale, uh, and there's some fantastic case studies out there, and, and I'll, I'll note, often driven just by innovative farmers, not necessarily coming out of academia or the research institutes, but by really innovative farmers trying out new ideas and, and, and sort of creating things from the ground up. Um, and so they're proven at a small scale, but they need to be scaled up. You know, and that's where we think investment capital can play a role. We help kind of turbocharge that transition from, let's say, more extractive, uh, conventional industrial agricultural systems to more ecological, sustainable, uh, resilient agricultural systems. And when you look at the current situation, because often investors are are asking the question, why now? And what's, what has changed um, in a sector to make it extremely interesting to enter at the moment? What makes the sector at the moment, except for all the, um, the huge issues you mentioned before, um, so interesting to start? Is it that the pioneers are ready? Is it that the systems are, are tried and now is the moment to scale them up? Or is there something else as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's two things changing at the moment. I think, you know, the first, going back to those environmental issues I talked about, what we're seeing is that those, let's say, what were previously externalities, which people got away with for free, are increasingly being priced and regulated, you know, and, and, and so actually um, farmers, land managers have been, are, are being forced by policy and regulation to actually um, take into account, you know, the impacts they're having on carbon, on water, on soils, and, you know, biodiversity. And that's leading to um, restrictive regulations in some places where you just can't do what you could do before. You know, um, take antibiotic use in intensive livestock production. You know, that was absolutely um, you know, widespread prophylactic use of low-dose antibiotics, completely mainstream in, in a lot of feedlot uh, in the U.S., for example. Uh, and that's going to change. You know, because everyone has seen as leading to, to um, antibiotic-resistant diseases, massive human health implications. Uh, and the regulations are tightening, and, and that will practice will have to change, and people will have to take a lot of antibiotics out of, of use. So we're seeing those regulations tightening up. On the flip side, in the environmental side, we're also seeing some, let's say, positive signals coming along. You know, some potential rewards um, for doing things the right way. So, for example, carbon markets. You know, it's been probably more talk than action so far when it comes to land uh, in particular. But we are seeing the emergence of these markets. So, for example, in Australia, where we work. Uh, the, the government's emissions reduction fund has is putting 2.5 billion Australian dollars to work, you know, paying mostly farmers to store carbon in, in trees, below soil, you know, on, on the on rural landscapes, and, and that's starting to generate some really interesting economic incentives, you know, to change practices. So I think that's the first part around 
those environmental externalities are getting priced, getting regulated. You know, farmers have to take into account more now than in the past. I think a second and maybe even a, a more um, a more powerful driver, a more immediate driver, is uh, shifting consumer demands and consumer trends. You know, in that the, the modern consumer, particularly young millennial consumer, is very aware of, of all these environmental issues, very concerned about where their food comes from. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's super uh, motivated by issues of sustainability, but also of, of health, nutrition, flavor. Uh, and, and that's creating a massive demand in markets like organic foods, you know, grass-fed beef, grass-fed um, dairy products. Um, and they're the fastest growing sectors in food at the moment. And so actually, you know, a lot of the, the, the traditional food companies are seeing that and, and, and are scrambling to respond. So consumers driving things very, very quickly. And then on the other side, you have the environmental uh, regulation and, and, uh, and markets kicking in as well. So so yeah, we think the shift is, is just beginning and has a long way to go. Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. And when you look at um, what drove you personally into the sector, well, is there was there a specific moment, or was it a, something that grew over time? How you ended up on on the regenerative or ecological farming side? Uh, I just I, I first came to this while working at a company called Climate Change Capital in London. It was an investment manager, uh, which had at that time the world's largest carbon fund, and uh, and we were sort of given the task of looking at that land through a climate change lens. And when you do that, you actually come to some quite interesting conclusions, you know, because you're looking at it in terms of, well, A, mitigation, so how you put carbon back into landscapes, but B, um, adaptation, resilience, you know, how do you make land more resilient to a, to a, a changing climate where there's going to be more extremes of, of, of drought and, uh, and flooding and, and heat waves and storms. Um, and, and if you look at it through that lens, yeah, you, you, um, you, you realize that what, you need, what we need to do is build healthier soil, put soil organic matter back in the soil, um, have more resilient uh, ecosystems and landscapes, more diverse landscapes as well. And, and, and you end up um, gravitating towards these more ecological uh, farming systems. So it was sort of a process of discovery, which I began probably about eight, nine years ago now, uh, where we developed some of these initial ideas. And I think the good thing is the more we've worked in this sector, we've been working this now since about 2008, um, the more I think we find that those ideas have been validated. You know, there were seeing more and more case studies of farmers proving these systems can work, uh, you know, economically and environmentally all around the world. Um, and, and those consumer um, trends are, are intensifying, as are those efforts to, to regulate the environmental impacts as well. So, yeah, it, it began eight years ago, but I, the nice thing is that we just think it's a, a train that's sort of gathering momentum, you know, year by year. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree, obviously. But And to come back to one of your points, you mentioned uh, resilience in, in the farmland. And I, I can imagine from an investor point of view, and you mentioned that in the white paper as well, it's very interesting to be invested in farms or farmland or farmland operations that have that are more resilient, especially in a time where climate change starts to kick in. Can you explain a bit more about how that change is a business model of a farm and how that's different from the traditional slash chemical way of farming. Yeah. Um, well, you know, farming is the ultimate biological uh, uh, business. You know, it, it, it's, it's, 
you know, the fundamental business of farming is, is taking sunlight, uh, you know, energy, uh, combining with water and, and the, the properties and, and minerals of the soils, you know, to, to, to grow things. It's a biological system. So you're always going to be exposed to some extent to, to fluctuations in, in, in weather and climate. Um, and that's always been the case, always will be the case. Uh, but yeah, we do see that those extremes are getting, uh, are getting more, um, more dangerous as time goes by. Uh, and the more conventional systems can be very stressed by that. So th th there's quite a few examples of that, of, for example, you know, organic cropping systems, um, which are able to outproduce in terms of yield, actually, conventional cropping systems, you know, dur during droughts. You know, there's been a number of case studies in 2012 in the US where that was the case with, with corn production. Um, uh, and we, we've also seen it when it comes to pasture-based systems, uh, you know, grass-based systems, where the landscapes would have um, healthier soils, healthier grasses, using forms of uh, rotational grazing or uh, multi-paddock grazing um, are able to ride out you know, those droughts and floods you know, an awful lot better. Um, so yeah, I think it, it, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting scene because it, economically, from a financial point of view, if you can, if you can um, take out some of those fluctuations in yield and production uh, when those weather extremes hit, but also kind of take off some of the reliance maybe on input costs as well, you, know, you can just smooth out the returns yeah, and, and the profitability and, and income from, from the land. Yeah, I remember one one example. I think in where in the drought, one um, ecological farm was still producing about eighty percent of of their normal yield, but their neighbors were probably hardly uh, harvesting anything, um, which would for them, of course, mean a completely lost year. But for the ecological farm, they were still having, although twenty percent less than normal, but uh, still actually uh, a proper yield to sell, probably at far higher prices because of the drought. Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's quite a, lot, a few examples. There was also a great example, I think, from Central America when, after one of the big hurricanes hit, where they examined a, a whole range of farms, you know, on, on the hillsides, and, and found that those using more ecological practices for better soil health, you know, they're the ones that survived. They were able, you know, whereas the ones that were more chemical based, more conventional, you know, huge problems with erosion, you know, a lot of crops could be wiped out. So. I think that there's growing body of evidence around that theme. Um, there's also diversity. I think you, you find that those more ecological farms tend to be growing a, a broader mix of, of crops or raising a, a broader mix of animals. So you're getting certain resilience just from diversity, um, which, which really reflects and mimics nature. Nature likes diversity. It, nature abhors a monoculture. Um, and that keeps you resilience uh, environmentally, but also in terms of markets as well, where you're going to have good years and bad years for different, uh, different products. So na nature gets bored when there's a monoculture and starts annoying it with pets, uh, pests, etc. Fights back, you know, rather effectively. Yeah, and uh, you, you, in the long run, you don't win that. And and if you look, so if we make it a bit more more concrete, um, you co-founded SLM Partners to to dive into this trend and to see the opportunities. W when was that? Yes, yeah, so we founded SLM Partners in 2009, um, and, and our our vision is you know, building a asset management uh, firm uh, wholly focuses on sustainable regenerative agriculture and forestry. So we take a real assets approach. So we're in most cases looking to acquire land or invest in land as a primary asset, uh, and then look to to really um, accelerate the shift in management. You know, from from let's say more uh, conventional unsustainable practices to more sustainable regenerative practices. Um, what we've done so far, we've raised. An Australian beef cattle fund um, in 2012. Uh, we have about 
100 million Australian dollars in, in equity and debt uh, in that structure in Australia. We've acquired over a million acres of land in Australia for grass that be uh, cattle production uh, using a, a form of rotational grazing called um, uh, adapt, adaptive multi-paddock grazing or holistic grazing uh, to take somewhat degraded land uh, and to um, to regenerate it, you know, and, and bring back the health of the soils and the grasses, but just by by managing cattle in a slightly different way. Uh, we're also working some new ideas where we're raising an Irish forestry fund. Uh, at the moment, we've got backing from the European Investment Bank uh, for that, uh, and the idea there is we're looking to acquire existing mid-rotation commercial forests in Ireland, all of which are destined to clear fell, uh, which can be destructive in, uh, in terms of the impacts on soils and water and, and biodiversity and, and even carbon storage and we, and we want to transform where possible to a, a more sustainable type of forest management called continuous cover forestry where you never you never clear the forest you maintain forest cover you selectively harvest you get a, a more natural diverse forest uh, we're also working on a um, some uh, investment strategies in, in chile and patagonia looking at sheep production and and, and, and looking at a couple of ideas in north america as well so global focus uh, but everything um everything comes back to a a uh, more ecological, let's say, farming or forestry system, which is proven at a smaller scale and, and looking to scale that up uh, you know, uh, through, through ownership of control of land and then also partnering with um, really great farmers and foresters. I mean, that's the other key thing. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, um, it's, there's lots of people running around, uh, former bankers with presentations and spreadsheets, and that's kind of easy to do. But the hard part is actually making it happen on the ground. And for that, you need great technical people, great operational managers, or people who got dirt on the fingernails and really have done this before. And so we always try and partner with those people you know, locally, you know, wherever we're operating. And when you look at um, um, the last few months and uh, what, what kept you up at night, what have you been working on? And of course, what you are allowed and possible to share, but what kept you up and what are you uh, proud of that worked in the last few months? Um, well, I, I, I think in, in terms of you know, progress we've made the last few months, I think we've um, done some quite interesting carbon deals in Australia, which we're, we're quite proud of. So we're, uh, we're participating in the Australian Emissions Reduction Fund. I mentioned to you before where um, we've actually won contracts to supply you know, quite a large amount of carbon credits from the land that we own in Australia, uh, mostly through regeneration of native woodlands and a savannah-type woodland ecosystem, which is very consistent with the kind of grazing approach that we're, that we're using down there. Um, so that's been that's been exciting to see that, that market develop and to be able to participate in that. Um, uh, I think the other thing is quite exciting. We, we're we're uh, we've um, on the verge of say, launching our Irish forestry fund, which would be a bit of a new departure for us into timber. Um, but I'm, I'm originally from Ireland, so it's you know, kind of close to my heart. Uh, and I think we have the chance to to really catalyze a bit of a change in how forests are managed. You know, not just in Ireland, but potentially across Northwest Europe, where you know, there's a kind of reliance on clear felling, and we think there might be a, a slightly better way to do it. So that's been two of the more exciting things to be involved with over the last uh, for the year or so. I so you know, an ongoing challenge, a lot of work we have put into is uh, raising capital and um, educating investors and, and, and finding investors who are who are um, willing to to back the kind of uh, strategies that, that we're developing. I think it's an overall lack of understanding of agriculture, actually, this full stop is quite new as an asset class. For many investors, um, uh, it tend, has not tended to attract much institutional capital actually until quite recently. So a, a huge amount of education has to be done just to get people comfortable with the, with the dynamics of the sector. Um, uh, and, and then, and then beyond that, you know, if you're doing something a little bit more ecological, something which is 
maybe um, not quite the mainstream, there's an extra level then of education <clears throat> to show people evidence, get people comfortable that this um, this can be scaled up. Yeah, I think that's, that's an excellent point you make because I think in the, the white paper you mentioned since 2009 that the boom in, in agriculture investment really started, but of course it was all um, traditional agriculture and, and the time of easy money or the days of easy money are over. So it's it's almost educating investors in a um, how agriculture actually should be done, but they, are, they either don't know it or they're used to something else or to get different presentations uh, with slightly different time horizons, etc. So how do you find, um, because w what's the big difference in the presentations you're giving and, and other um, uh, fund managers in the agriculture space are giving? And what's the response to that? Sure, yeah. Well, well I think you know, there's, a, there's a, a small number of groups like ours you know, who are trying to... Uh, attract investment in these say, more ecological regenerative agriculture systems um uh you know we in our white paper we identify i think six or seven different groups probably in total we manage about 500 million dollars in assets um uh so it's, it's it's not insignificant at the same time if you look at the total money that's been raised for agriculture investment over the last sort of 10 years it, it, it's probably more than um you know 20 billion so it's still a small percent of that um and i think most of the the money has been flowing into conventional more industrial farming systems it, it kind of appeals in a way to a financial mindset where everything gets reduced to a pretty linear process where you you uh you acquire an asset you work out what it costs in terms of inputs to put things in and what you might get to put, take things out the other end um and the more simplified it, it can seem and the more industrial it can seem and the more it can look like a like a factory for example the the easier it is in some ways to convince people that this is the way to go so i think there's a small number of us who are trying to um show that there are actually uh, there's quite a a ferocious debate going on within farming around the future of agriculture uh, and that there are some really really interesting and compelling um, strategies that, that have a more ecological uh, leaning i think though that that space is opening up more and more now actually and, and that will be the the third factor i mentioned about the environmental regulation and, and, and consumer uh, trends but actually the third thing's happening in the investment side is you know if you look at where money flowed in agriculture over the last five to ten years it mostly went into quite passive buy and lease strategies, especially focused on the, in North America, where people typically um, land banking, acquiring land, uh, leasing it out, not really caring too much what happened on the land, and just riding up a secular upswing in, in land prices. You know? And there was some pretty aggressive land appreciation, um, especially in the US and many parts of the world over the last decade, and that produced good returns. But that started to run out of steam now because land prices are actually um, coming down, they're correcting, uh, cash rents are coming down. Uh, if you look at con uh, conventional corn, soybean, wheat prices, they're at, they're low. Farmers are actually losing money uh, in many, uh, most of them uh, this year in the U.S. So it's it's a pretty tough time actually in conventional agriculture to make any money. Um, and 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 at the same time, you look what's happening in the organic space uh, in, in these more let's say consumer friendly uh, markets. That's where all the growth is. You know, that's where premiums are available. That's where people are still making good money. So. I think um, investors are, are waking up to that. They're seeing that those more passive conventional strategies are maybe running out of puff a little bit, and they're looking for uh, say a higher value add, more active, more niche strategies, yeah, where, where they can uh, get behind the team and, and propel some changes in, in, in how the land is managed and, and capture more, more returns from that. Yeah, it seems like the perfect storm for the traditional agriculture system has arrived. And if you look at um, what do you see as the biggest risk or the biggest hidden overlooked risk of the traditional um, agriculture side? You mentioned a number of them in, in, in the white paper. What, 
what what for you is the number one overlooked risk there um well i i think it depends on your on your time frame i think if you look uh over a very long time frame i think you know the degradation of natural assets in particular soil degradation i think it's a huge issue for kind of you know, humankind over the next century um it's one of these slow run problems that you can ignore especially if you're in a very a fertile area with with with, with very deep uh, topsoils, um, but eventually it will come back to bite you. You know, for example, Iowa is a great example. Some of the most fertile, wonderful soils in the world, but Iowa's lost half of its topsoil. You know, over the last 150 years through erosion. Now it's still got you know many feet left because it's, it's incredibly deep, but that just keeps going on. Eventually, you will hit bedrock. You know, and and you will see <coughs> declining yields and problems you know, cropping up. So I think that. That soil degradation is one of these uh, things which doesn't get a huge amount of attention, but it's it's um it, it's it's a big issue. And then if you go to more let's say less uh, more brittle parts of the world, uh, which don't didn't start out with such uh, abundant resources and natural resources and soil resources, you are seeing it you know really kicking in where you know uh, erosion, um, loss of nutrients, uh, loss of soil structure is leading to to collapse of, of systems, you know, and climate change is then so you know aggravating that to to a large extent. So I think that's just sort of the long-term thing. I think, though, in the in the media term, the bigger risk of, of the more conventional systems is is the changing consumer. You know, the consumer, um, whether you agree or disagree, you know, wants something different from what conventional ag is selling. You know, um, the consumer wants something green, um, healthy, uh, uh, you know, flavorsome, uh, with a story behind it, and, and that's that's good for the environment. You know, and I think that. The more conventional systems have a real struggle on their hands trying to uh, trying to overcome that. Um, so I think that's what's going to propel actually the immediate shifts back along the supply chain, you know, via the food companies, via the restaurants, via the Chipotle's and Whole Foods and um, of the world, you know, who, who are recognizing that and, and trying to follow it. And and when you look at uh, the the sector, the regenerative agriculture sector as it's scaling. What are the two most important barriers you see for um, for this sector to reach its potential? Yeah, so I think you know the the question we always get, and I think lots of people get working in this space is, um, you know, where is the track record? Like, where is the proof? Um, and uh, you know, a lot of these systems they have been proven sometimes at a small and medium scale, usually by individual farmers. Um, but there can be a bit of a leap to go from that to actually an investment product, you know, a fund or or a company um, you know, doing it at a larger scale. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge still, um, uh, just be able to, to sh- show evidence and data that this can be done at a scale. Um, now, I think it's, I think, I think there's enough proof of that. Nature has done it for a few billion years, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's enough proof of that medium scale, you know, talking about, so economic proof as well, of, of really great, you know, medium to large scale producers doing it uh, on their own farms. So I think it's, that is there, and then I think it is possible to go from there to a slightly larger version of that, a more institutional investment version of that. Um, and, and I think as time goes by, we will fill in more of the gaps, and we'll have more successful uh, funds out there with track records, and then it becomes much, much easier. I think that's probably still the biggest obstacle is that, is that question of track record and, and improve. Um, I, I think the um, I think the second is, is just a more general one for the sector in that just agriculture of any type is still unfamiliar territory for most investors, you know, and it's just a you know, education required to get people used to the dynamics of, of the sector. You know, it tends to be capital intensive. Um, the returns are lower. You know, you're not going to get your VC private equity double, you know, 20, 25 percent 
net IRRs. It's just not possible. Um, but the same thing, you have a lot of downside protection because you have real assets, you have land, you have biological assets, so um, which are also depreciating assets usually over time rather than depreciating. So, so, so I think just getting people to understand the dynamics of, of the sector will, um, is the other obstacle. And, and some have got there and are allocating and investing heavily, but a lot are still working their way through the, the education process. They're still in the, the return vision of Silicon Valley and still the illusion of, of the 20-25% that it's possible outside software. Yeah, yeah ex- ex- exactly. Yeah. And when, when you look at the barrier of, of scaling the, the few pioneers or the pioneers with a few hundred or a few thousand hectares to, to a fund like, like SLM, uh, like you're managing now, how did you overcome that barrier um, to investors? And because I know the, the fundraising hasn't been easy. Is there any key lesson, any key takeaway on, on how to overcome that and be one of the first to raise such a fund? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is building a great team. So actually um, uh, building a team with real farmers who've actually done it before um, and who can point in a way to their own personal track record. Uh, you know, there may not be a traditional financial track record of of IRRs and multiples and the like, um, but it's a uh, it's an operational track record. Uh, and so I think having those people on the team is, is critical. I think the second then is is um, being able then to identify and research and, and kind of and uh, catalogue in a way the case studies that do exist you know in, in that particular region uh, and be able to present them to investors and take investors to those farms and, sh- and show them that's what we did we took investors to farms in Australia using the same exactly the same ideas having done it with great success uh, and so they could sort of see with their own eyes yeah you know this has been done on let's say you know 10,000 20,000 acres well there's no reason it can't be done on 100,000 or, or, or 500,000 acres so I think yeah, having those, those real-life uh, case studies is very important. And if you look at, at your, your coming months slash, let's say, six months, what, what are you working on mainly and what's your, your main uh, goals? What are your main goals for the next uh, half a year? Uh, so we'll be you know, um, continuing your operations in Australia and, um, uh, and, and you know, looking to take advantage of what's been a really good year in terms of rainfall and, and, and growth down there. Um, so very much focused on operations in Australia and then raising capital for our new projects in, in Ireland, in forestry and, and also in Chile and livestock. Uh, and then we're starting to think about some ideas in, in North America as well. Um, uh, where I think it is possible to do things at even you know, probably an even greater scale, you know, given the, the dynamics that are there. So we're putting a lot of effort uh, quietly in, in, into developing some strategies for the U.S. And for Ireland, do you see because you've been for six, seven years uh, talking about livestock to investors into your network, and now you're talking about trees and forests? Is that difficult for them to get their heads around, or are you already into the door because you have uh, you've built up this track record in agriculture in general. Um, so a couple of things I think you know we always said at the beginning that we, uh, we we want to look at agriculture and forestry. You know if you look at our our kind of philosophy is around rural land um, and you know harnessing sunlight, water, um, uh, and, and soils. You know to to grow things. Um, and you know it, it's interesting. So um, f- financial investors. Uh, like to think in asset classes, but nature doesn't think that way. You know, the boundaries are fluid and everything's interlinked. Um, and so we actually, we can see a time in the future where we may even try and combine some agriculture and forestry strategies together. So they've, they've always been kept apart, but actually 
we see some really interesting potential for agroforestry systems, you know, in some parts of the world. So, so I think um, yeah, this uh, our new steps into forestry is, is always something we had in mind. Um, and I think in in the future, you know, we can see some very like, complementarity between the, the agriculture side and the forestry side. I think the second thing is we've also been building up a, a team of people who have this real forestry experience. So we, uh, you know, we have um, uh, a guy who's joining a team in London who, who's spent his whole life in forestry. You help run a two hundred fifty million dollar uh, uh, forestry fund in Asia, um, and we're working with a great team of forest managers in Ireland too. So. Again, without that team, there'd be no point in even trying. But, but because we have the, the right people in place, then it, yeah, it, it is credible. And and for the teams on the ground, is it difficult to or challenging maybe to to see a future where those two worlds collide, or it's very natural to imagine livestock and forestry in the same system at some point? Uh, it it depends where you go. I think it, it, it it's interesting. I think yeah, it, in educational terms. You think where people go to college and learn about agroforestry, they're often kept quite separate. And actually, one of the impa- 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 sort of unfortunate implications of policy has also been to keep the two very apart as well. Especially in Europe, where you have a common agriculture policy, which is all about farming, and then you have forest policies, which are all about forestry, and never the twain shall meet. You know, and, and, and God forbid you fall in between, because then you might lose out on your subsidies on both sides. Yeah? And that wouldn't be good. So I think there's also some... Uh, unintended consequences from the, the kind of the policy side, where keeping those worlds apart. Now, having said that, there are some again fantastic innovators out there doing um, agroforestry and silvopastoral systems you know, very successfully, you know, at a decent scale. Uh, examples in the U.S., examples in Spain, you know, examples in other parts of the world. So, um, yeah, we think that's that's a really exciting area actually, agroforestry, and, and that um, and that uh, and, and yeah, and that that there is. Enough of those conditions in place in terms of case studies, uh, technical experts, that it will be possible to be there in the future. Extremely interesting. So I would like to conclude with with the last question. Um, if you uh, could give advice to smart investors that want to get into the regenerative agriculture space, what would be your number one advice? Um, I think, yeah, only invest with teams who have real farmers on board yeah um it's, it's it's too easy to to um it's too easy to come to come up and sell a concept but but the farming is actually really hard and it's actually hard in managing a fund for example and so unless you've got people you know on a team who've actually done this and have made mistakes and and, and have the scars to, to show it then i'd be a little bit wary so i think yeah having that sort of technical operational element is, is so so important in, in in the world of agriculture are, are there um, moments in the last six, seven years that you, um, because you, you don't have farming experience, right? No, but thankfully I partner with people who do. And have, have you had any experiences where um, the lack of farming experience of you was awkward or painful or? Uh, not really, because I know when to defer to my, uh, <laughs> the, the experts on our teams. So I, you know, I, I think it's, it's important that people bring a diverse range of skills to a team. Um, and you know, and those with tech knowledge, you know, are given the space to 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 make those decisions and drive strategy when appropriate. You know, at the same time, you know, it is also important to have people with investment financial experience as well, who can who know what investors want. You know, who can um, who can structure things, who can who can do who can report back, who can uh, who can make it work as an investment. So there's a certain amount of translation has to go on between the world of farming and the world of finance. You know, which which speaks very different languages. Yeah, that's actually exactly the 
the type of people I would like to interview in this uh, in these podcasts who are with one leg in the farming world and with the other leg in the finance world to to scale the regenerative agriculture space. So thank you, Paul, so much for for your time and uh, and your your knowledge today. And uh, I speak to you soon. Great, thank you very much. You just listened to an interview with Paul McMahon, co-founder of SLM Partners, who is scaling up the regenerative agriculture sector in Australia, Ireland and Chile. I hope you will join us again soon with many more interviews with people in the finance sector and practitioners on the ground all working to scale up the regenerative agriculture industry. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.